Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. In John chapter 18, we have the incredible, miraculous story of Jesus' arrest. In an astounding show of power and authority, Jesus boldly approaches a detachment of 600 Roman soldiers and in two words drives them all to their knees. Jesus Christ is indeed God Almighty. Let's open our Bible now to John chapter 18 and look at this amazing account of the arrest of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another teaching. It's a Sunday afternoon here in Texas and hopefully all are just loving on Jesus, spending time with Jesus. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's uh, it's Sunday. What is it? May 8th today. I know it's Mother's Day. I've sent out so many Mother's Day texts. I've called my mother, the mother of my children, and uh, and uh, just that's just been a blessing. And so, uh, man, it's just it's just a blessing. I'll say, uh, you know, just being a mother is just a hard, hard job. And I was uh, I was at a 7-Eleven this morning with a brother of mine, Jason, and um, early this morning, a little after 7 a.m. And and I was I was in there getting excited because they got that new coffee machine in 7-Eleven, and I mean I dig that right, and I you know and they have my decaf ready, and uh, I mean I just like being in there, and uh, and, and the lady was in there, and I uh, gave her a little paper, a little gospel tract about Jesus, and I told her Happy Mother's Day, and she is a mother. And uh, and I had said to her, you know, every man owes his life to some woman. And she liked that. That's right. We do. So let's not get to think that uh, that we got this figured out as men, because all of us need to give thanks to some woman. And so, Mom, I thank you. And uh, I love you and I and I appreciate you. So happy Mother's Day. Um, it's a good day that we, that we celebrate mothers. Mothers are the hardest working people. And, um, you know, I believe they have the most ingrained love, even more than fathers. I believe this, that mothers just have a, a mother's love, you know, um, and, uh, that Jesus, you know, has put in their hearts for their children. So happy mother's day today to, to all the moms out there. We do appreciate you very, very much. Today, we're, uh, we're beginning John 18. Um, hopefully, we'll get through verse 14 today. Um, just, uh, in, you know, from here to the end of the chapter now, it's going to be about Jesus's arrest, um, you know, persecution, you know, uh, just the, the torture he went through, his crucifixion, um, and his resurrection from the dead and, and all that happened. So there's four chapters left in the book, um, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Um, we finished 17 chapters of John teaching verse by verse. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and goodness on our lives. We thank you for your favor and your grace. Um, Father, we thank you that we have our Bible. We thank you that we have the living word of God. Mm. Father, above all, we thank you for Jesus, our only Lord and Savior and Master and King. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, 
for becoming a human man for us, living a perfect life for us, giving us your word. We thank you for dying just a horrible, torturous death for us. And we thank you that you are alive and risen today, and we worship you today, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us and guide us now. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, John 18, verses 1 through 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just an, just an incredible scene here, Scott. I mean, it's... uh. I mean, these are just, I mean, it's just good stuff, Uncle Dennis, right? I mean, all right, verse one. <laughs> when he had finished praying, Jesus, you remember the entire chapter of John 17 is Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for us, those who would be his disciples. And it says in verse one, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and he and his disciples went into it. Now, when I had always pictured this in my mind, or when you saw it on in the movie The Passion of the Christ, it, you know, it's portrayed as like, I don't know, like just a regular size place, you know, like just what you would picture in a in a garden scene in the back of someone's house or something. But it cannot be that. Okay. This has to be a, a fairly large olive grove. It has to be a lot of space. Um and we're going to get into why that is, but because we're going to see there that in verse three, so we'll get to that now, but verse two, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
So Jesus is not hiding. Okay? He knows that's going to happen to him. Okay? It says in verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, Corinne. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew how it was going to go down. And he was the one calling the shots, Chris. Okay? Jesus is the one calling the shots. He knows what's going to happen to him. Okay? And he's choosing what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And he's going to make clear what's not going to happen. And he has the power to do it. All right? As we're going to see here in just in miraculous fashion. So now Judas who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So, you know, Jesus went to a place, he knew Judas was going to betray him, um, and he goes to a place where he knows that Judas will know where he is. He didn't go to a new place, he didn't go into hiding, he went with his disciples to a place where they often went in fellowship together, had community together, often where he went to spend time with them, and teach them, and just be with them, right? Um, so again, if, if Jesus was hiding, undoubtedly, he would have looked to go somewhere where, you know, where no one could find him, but he's not hiding. Jesus is willingly going to be arrested, willingly going to be tortured, willi willingly going to be crucified. Um, and, and he will even raise himself from the dead. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, verse three. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Okay, so apparently they, you know, they're 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 prepared to go on a search for him because normally when you go searching for somebody, they're running away, and you know you have to go through this process of trying to find out where they're hiding. Maybe you got to go into some caves or something. But, you know, they're all prepared to go on this search. But they're going to be surprised because they're not going to have to search for Jesus. Right, Esther? So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers. So this word detachment, when I was studying um, and preparing for this, the word used here can have three different references. Okay, A detachment of soldiers, right, um, in the Roman world at that time, could be a thousand. It is most often used when this when this word detachment is used. It's most often used to mean six hundred soldiers, but it can also refer to a thousand, and it can refer to two hundred. Okay, so there are a minimum of of two hundred soldiers. These are Roman armed soldiers, right, going after Jesus and his disciples. Okay, Jesus is, he, he, he's been preaching the word of God. He's been preaching the kingdom of God. He's shown incredible love. He's fed the masses. He's healed the sick. Um, he's taught the truth of the word of God. And yet here comes a minimum of 200. Now it's probably 600 soldiers. There are some scholars that, that are more certain that it was 600. Okay, 600 is the probable number. That was the usual number of soldiers used when you would write, when you would write a detachment of Roman soldiers, it would normally mean 600 armed soldiers, right? Torches, lanterns, 
and weapons. Doesn't it seem like just a bit of the bit of an overkill? Okay, so apparently they were they were expecting some resistance, right? Um, apparently they were expecting a fight, so they bring just just a massive a massive amount of uh, of firepower, right, so to speak, to uh, to deal with. Uh, you know what they 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 figure is going to be a rebellion, right? So the reason I said is when you picture this scene and when I had pictured it, when you see it in the movies, again you you seem to see about I don't know seven or eight soldiers, right? Sometimes you'll see twenty. So this olive grove has got to be pretty big. You try to think of six hundred soldiers. I mean, where does that go? Where do you put them? You almost think of like a, you know. You almost think of like a Walmart parking lot or something that's empty and try to picture 600 armed soldiers there, right? And so it's it's quite a scene. Now, it, it says that there was detachment of soldiers, those 600, and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. So there was the Roman guard, obviously, the Roman soldiers, but but the chief priests... Um, and the Pharisees and the temple had its own security, had its own guard, and there were some of, some of them as well. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? So you notice they don't have to go looking for him. They don't have to go chasing him. He goes to them. So now imagine again, you're the commander um, of this detachment of soldiers. You're commanding 600 soldiers and Jesus sees them and it says, he went out and asked them, who is it you want? So he approaches them. So already, you know, the guys looking around, the soldiers, the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, um, their guard, this is not something you ever see. This is not something you're used to. You don't see someone boldly, unarmed, walk up to, you know, a detachment of 600 soldiers, chief priests, Pharisees. Generally, everyone would cower under such things. Normally, they got to go chasing them. Normally, you got to go find them. Normally, they'd run away. This is the absolute opposite. Jesus confronts them and says, who is it you are? Who is it you want? Verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, um, Jesus of Nazareth was a term used often to, to uh, it was an insult, right? Because Nazareth, Nazareth was just considered a, you know, a, just a nothing little town, right? Um, and so they call him Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Jesus said, I'm still in verse five, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. So Judas led them to where he believed Jesus would be. <clears throat> Again, Jesus didn't tell Judas where he and the disciples would be, but this is where they all hung out together and spent time together. It says they often met here. So maybe they were going to try several different locations, but there he was in the place that uh, they often met. When he says, I am he, scholars say that the word he is not in the original manuscripts. 
Okay, they're very clear on it that says it's the translators that add the word he. So when they say Jesus of Nazareth, after he says, who is it you want? The answer would have been, I am, Jesus said. Now, the words I am, they would have known them and heard them, particularly the chief priests and Pharisees, to know that when Moses came to God and said, who should, who should I say sent me? I believe it's Exodus 4, 3 or 4, um, Exodus 4, I believe. And God says, say, I am who I am sent you, okay? So it's, it's one of the names of God Almighty, okay? Now, we've talked about it through this entire book that, that Jesus clearly and unambiguously proclaimed himself to be God. Right, the things that came out of his mouth. You remember in John eight, um, you know they say, you know Jesus said he saw Abraham. They look at Jesus and say, "You're not even fifty years old. How have you seen Abraham?" And he says, "I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am." Right? I, would, I think it's John eight, maybe fifty eight. Um, but uh, and then they pick up stones to stone him, but it wasn't his time to die, so he walks away. So when he says, "I am He," again. They, they, the words I am, right, are, is when God is speaking of himself and Moses wants to know what kind of name, here's the name you give him. Tell him I am sent you, right? It is, it is, it is a, it is a reference to the power and authority and sovereignty of God almighty. I am, and again, the translators added the he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Look what happens when, when Jesus says, I am. Verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, now that's in there, right? That's in the scriptures. When Judas said, when Jesus said, I'm sorry, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. How is it that one, how is it that one unarmed man can walk up to an, a detachment of 600 armed soldiers? Again, they could see it in his posture. They could see it in his demeanor. They undoubtedly could see authority in him. So when he says, who is it you want in verse 4? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, verse 5. When he says, I am he, it's clear that the power and the authority of the I am, of the almighty God, that that came through that he allowed it to came through to come through and it intentionally came through okay so when he says that and you take that and you couple it with his with again just the boldness and the certainty and just his his manner his gait david right whatever it is however it is that he's handling himself right i got a, a cousin david who's an author and uh you know you try to try to write out this scene, right, Dave? And I mean, he's uh, you know, six hundred soldiers behind, 
Jesus walks to them. He's confident. Um, clearly, there's no anxiety in him. He approaches them. He's dictating the situation. He's asking the questions. Okay? They say, who are you looking for? He says, who are you looking for? And he, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And there's such authority, such power. It says that when Jesus said, John 18, verse 6, I am. And as, it says, as I said, the translator said they added the word he just for translation purposes. They drew back and fell to the ground. So, again, how do you, man, just a, uh, you know, just some type of historical, you know, fiction here, meaning this is exactly what happened. But to have this, like a painting of this or something, right, to have a, a gifted author just really write out this scene in, a, in, a, in say, a full chapter in a, in a book or something, right? When Judas said, when Jesus said, I am he, it says Judas right above it. Um, you know, the line right above it says, and Judas, the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We were doing Bible study on uh, Tuesday and, uh, and Jesse, who's an elder in the ministry said, it's just, it's just hard to believe. Right. But they clearly, again, 600 soldiers clearly experienced some sort of of serious divine intervention right there there Jesus's deity came through there had to be such power in his voice and he allowed the deity to come through just enough that so try to picture now 600 soldiers armed it says they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus still standing there. <laughs> yeah. Do you see what we're dealing with here? Again, I say this all the time. We, we, we don't really know who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. We're not, it's not like any other person that ever walked the earth. It's not like Moses. It's not like David. It's not like Abraham, Isaac. Joseph, it's not like any other biblical uh, figure, Peter, Paul, John the Baptist. It's not like any figure outside the Bible. It's not like Gandhi or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or, or, you know, or anybody, right? When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, I'm trying to picture it. You know, they obviously back up. And do they fall over backwards? Do they fall down uh, prostrate? It's a, it's a scene, right? <laughs> and and in, I have said this in Bible study. You know, you like this, Corinne, right? In verse 7, it says, again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus doesn't even... Um, He's not moved by what happened. He's not excited about what happened. He doesn't feel puffed up that when he said, I am he, that 600 soldiers drew back from him 
and fell to the ground with their torches, lanterns, and weapons. He, he doesn't even, you know, he doesn't even acknowledge it, it seems. Right? I said in Bible study, I might have said something there, right? When they, when they fell back, when they drew back and fell to the ground, you know, I might have looked at him and said, now you know. Y'all need to be a little more careful. You see, I'll say something else, and it'll get worse. <laughs> now you know who you're playing with. Careful. But you see, when you're the big dog, when you're Jesus, when you're God, you're not surprised that this happened. <laughs> you and I are surprised that it happened, right, Stephen? It's kind of like a scene that we can't even picture. But he's not moved by it. You know, it's again trying to write this or paint this, right? With a good writer with, you know, who can just do facial expressions. They drew back and fell to the ground. Verse seven. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? So, you know, you just picture them. They're on the ground. Some of their helmets are kind of cocked. They drop in their swords, right? You gotta, you gotta go pick all that stuff up, fix your helmet, stand back up. <laughs> and again, he makes no reference to it. He doesn't feel proud. He doesn't feel puffed up because he's the one calling the shots, right? Now, again, what you need to see here is Jesus is the one dictating what's happening. He's going to willingly turn himself over for to be bound. He's going to allow himself to be arrested. He's going to allow himself to be tortured and crucified because he's going to become sin. All of this He's allowing because of his love for you and his love for me. His love for humanity, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him. God the Father gave Jesus up to this incomprehensible horror of becoming sin, going through a torture unimaginable. Crucifixion was, you know, was 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 invented by the Romans to be one of the most torturous, agonizing deaths that could be imagined. And Jesus submitted to all this willingly, according to his will, and how it, it, it was going to be done. They weren't calling the shots. He was calling the shots. And again, he submits to this so that every human being can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He submits to this because all of us need him. Romans 3.23 says that all human beings have sinned and fall short of God's holy standard. All of us are sinful. We all need a savior. And we cannot save ourselves. We're hopeless. We're desperate. We're helpless. We're headed to hell. Only Jesus Christ can intercept us. It's only Jesus who lived a perfect life. It's only Jesus who then died a perfect death on the cross. And he is alive and risen today. And he is promised. He's given his word. John 1.12 said that to, says that to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you genuinely and truly received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. I'm not asking you if you believe in Jesus, okay? Um, 
intellectual assent, acknowledging that, that Jesus lived. He is a historical figure, right? There is no doubt Jesus lived. There's no doubt he was crucified. Jesus Christ is a historical figure, okay? If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in George Washington, you don't believe in Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you don't believe in anyone that you don't have video of, right? Because Jesus Christ is just an absolute historical figure, right? It's universally accepted, right? By all rational scholars. Um, but that's that's not salvation. Believing that that Jesus existed, even believing that he died on a cross, even believing that he was raised from the dead is not the same. When the Bible says to believe in Jesus, it's saying to receive him. It's to believe means to trust in or to rely on, you know, on Jesus, to put your full confidence in Jesus. If I was to say, you know, may I believe in you. When I say those words, may I believe in you, is my wife taking me to mean that I believe she exists? It's ridiculous, right? Of course she exists. That's not what I mean. I mean, I believe that you can do it. I trust that you can do it. I have full confidence in you. To believe in Jesus means to, to put your full trust and confidence and faith in Jesus Christ alone, knowing you're a sinful person, knowing you cannot save yourself, and only hell awaits, because that's what the Bible teaches. All 8 billion people in the world need Jesus. Without Jesus, no one will see heaven, and hell is the only place. Again, I don't, I don't like that. I, I don't want anyone to go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus, out of his own mouth, in John 14, verse 6, said, I am the way, the truth. In the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one, right? Jesus Christ is the only way to have our sins forgiven. The only way to come into relationship with God the Father as our Heavenly Father. And the only way to ultimately go to heaven when we die. So I'll ask you again, have you truly and genuinely received Jesus Christ into your heart for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's important we understand it's not the words that save us, right? Uh, we use our words to communicate our heart to the Lord, right? Um, it's Christ that saves us. But when you call out to him, when you humble yourself before Jesus, and confess, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinful person. I know I've done wrong. And Lord, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I'm desperate. But Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe the Bible. I believe that you came into this world and lived a perfect life for me. And died that horrible, torturous death for me. And I believe that you are alive and risen today. And therefore, Lord Jesus, I humbly ask you now to come into my heart and to be the Lord of my life. I ask you to save me from my sin and to bring me to heaven when I die. Lord Jesus, I place all my faith and hope and trust and confidence in you alone to save me and to be my everlasting Lord and God. That's how you become a Christian. Now, again, I want to say 
if, if, if you're not sure you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you think you just might have an intellectual belief, go back, rewind the tape, use the words I've used. But it is the genuineness, the sincerity of your heart that matters. Knowing your need of Christ, knowing you're a hopeless sinner, and that only in Jesus Christ can you come into relationship with God the Father, spend eternity in heaven, and avoid eternity in hell separated from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Give your life to Jesus today if you're not sure. That's why he does it. That's why he willingly turns himself over to them. But make no mistake, he is the one calling the shots. He's calling all the shots, right? When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so again, they're getting up off the ground. Try to picture these 600 guys getting off the ground, not really knowing what happened right there. But all I know is that I had to fall to the ground because when that man said, I am, there was such power that I had never heard. I couldn't even understand, but all I had to do was fall to the ground before him. <clears throat> In Philippians 2, it says that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> wow. <clears throat> like I said, these guys getting up, right? Liam, just uh, you know, shaking it off. I don't even know what happened right there. And again, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. He's so cool, right? I mean, Jesus is the coolest guy ever. Again, the rest of us might have had a little pride there, right? You know, might have crossed my arms like this and said, huh, yeah, now you know who the big dog is. You know, when you're the big dog, as Jesus is the only big dog, he's not surprised about what happened. He's not surprised they all fell to the ground because he spoke the two words. And again, he spoke them in a manner so that what happened would happen. He wanted to make it clear to them how this was going to go down, okay? Because notice it says, again, Jesus asked them, what is it you want? Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, I told you, I am he. Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. It's not a question. It's not a request. Okay. It says in verse nine, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And it's speaking about the disciples. None of them were lost. None of them were taken. Right. None of them were arrested with Jesus. You know, none of them were killed, right, here with Jesus. Now, they would all ultimately be martyred except for John, right? Um, but he says in verse 8, I told you that I am he. Now, here, whatever it is, he doesn't use the same emphasis. They are the same words, but, you know, they've heard him now. He says, I told you that I am he. So he's, re he's reminding them now. We can do this one of two ways. You can take me, 
but these men you will let go. It's not a question. It's a directive. Okay? I told you that I am he. Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And again, it's a command. He's, he's commanding them that I'm going to come with you, but these men are not. And we're going to see the reality of that by what happens here, right? Uh, Peter is going to cut off uh, the high priest's servant, Malchus's ear. And, uh, you know, and still he doesn't get taken. They don't chase him. Um, and we're going to get to that in a minute. So if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Verse 9, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost none of those you gave me. So again, you see how Jesus is calling the shots, right, Pop? Boom, boom, boom. The world is not dictating. Jesus is God. He's going to give his life for the, for the sin of the world. He's going to willingly allow them to bind him. Because he didn't have to let him bind them, right, Dave? You know, the same power that he used to say, I am he, he could have defeated them all, right? The universe, the universe, you know, the planets, the stars, the whole, you know, universe, Neil Dustin, right? The universe was created by the word of God, by Jesus's words, the word of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, 15 to 17, it says it was Jesus who created everything. It's, you know, Jesus in his full deity, right? Here, he's fully God, fully man. But it says in uh, Colossians 1.15 that all things were created by him, Jesus, and for him. And certainly he's before all things. Um, but that, that universe and the earth and all the planets and the stars, which scientists tell us is a pretty big place, Right, Andy Jackie? The universe is big, Christian, right? Um, that was made by the word of God, okay? In Genesis 1, the, Bible's the Bible opens. You can go to your Bible. You ought to read that, that book of Genesis. You ought to read the whole Bible, but you see the beginnings, right? And in Genesis 1, you see that God creates the universe. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And how did he do it? He spoke it into existence. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? He spoke the universe into existence. The word of God created the universe. He made the universe with his words. This Bible you have is the word of God. That's the power in these pages of scripture. Yeah, you see, we don't really get what we're dealing with when we're reading our Bible. We don't know who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. My, my, my. Hmm. So again, the power of his word that he used to create the universe, the power of his words when he said, I am he, in a way that they experienced his deity when he said it, he obviously could have used those same words and just destroyed everybody, right? <laughs> again, it wouldn't have been a fight, right? So he's choosing and he's dictating specifically how everything's going to go, okay? And none of these guys are going to get hurt, okay? 
And it's, it's interesting because look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, it was interesting when I was studying this, the scholars had made a, a point I had not considered um, that, that to cut off his right ear, okay, right, try to picture this scene, he, he would have had to have been behind him, right? Because if he was facing him, he couldn't have cut off his left ear. He had to cut off his face or something, right? So can you see that? Uh, Peter cuts off his right ear. So that so Peter must have been facing his back because then the right ear is over here and boom, you just slice off the right ear, right? Um, and so, again, if Peter is trying to cut off his right ear, he certainly has to be standing behind him, okay? Because if you're facing somebody with a sword and you try to cut off their right ear, you can't, you can't get at it. Does that make sense? Can you see that? You can't cross over his face and you won't even get to the right ear. Now, the other interpretation, of course, is that Peter is facing him, but he's not aiming for his ear, right? But even if he's not aiming for his ear, he couldn't cut off his right ear unless he goes to swing for his head and Malchus somehow turns and the ear gets cut off, right? So there is a thought that, that Peter's not aiming to cut off his ear. He's aiming for his head and possibly Malchus, you know, goes to turn and and boom, that ear gets lopped off and falls to the ground. Now, when that happened, you'd have thought that the that the 600 soldiers would have come in now with their weapons and arrested Peter and everybody else. That's a fairly violent act, right? Cutting off somebody's ear, right? It is certainly a crime, okay? You know, it's... Uh, Peter just just loses it. Peter had just said that he wouldn't deny Jesus, and he's gonna. He's he, this is wrong. What Peter's doing, um, you know, uh, you know. Again, when I was studying this, I think it might have been Spurgeon uh, that's that made the point that you know Peter, Peter, Peter will lack the faith to stand up for Jesus with his words, but he's going to kind of prove his manhood here and stand up for Jesus with his sword, right? Because. You know, here and you know, in a little bit, Peter's actually going to deny Jesus three times, right? Um, you know, we're going to see it later in this chapter. But here, Peter's going to back up his words, right? Um, again, and it's wrong. Um, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, verse 11, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's just explained to them in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, all the things that are going to happen to him, right? That the Holy Spirit's going to come and this and that. But now that it's on him, again, none of us would have really understood better. Um, Jesus commanded Peter. So obviously there's an emphasis here. Put your sword away. Number one, again, Jesus don't need his help, okay? You know, Pete, I appreciate this, bruh. I appreciate your love for me, but I, I can handle it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so again, I guess Peter didn't get it when they saw the 600 soldiers fall to the ground. Again, and it's so, it's, you know, it's easy for us to see, right? Hindsight's 2020. You ever heard that? Hindsight, you know, 20. You see it clearly now, right? But you'd have thought when when the 600 soldiers fell to the ground, it would have been like, huh, yeah, 
Oh, that's kind of neat, huh? He just said like two words and the entire detachment just fell to the ground. It just, yeah. But, you know, in the, in the emotion of the moment, Peter's going to defend Jesus. He cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus commands him, put your sword away. And then he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And the cup is, you know, shall I not do what the Father has given me to do? Shall I not walk out the call of God in my life? Shall I not go through what the Father has called me to go through? You see it, verse 11, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is telling Peter, again, I guess you didn't understand, Pete, everything I just said, but I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to take on the sin of the world. I'm going away. Um, he's explained this to them in the past three and a half years, but they really don't understand what he's saying. Now that the moment is here, um, it's just, again, it's obviously there's chaos going on, right? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus willingly, again, submitted to becoming and dying. He became sin, right? I think it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the sin of the world, right? I think it's John 1 John 2.2. 2. Um, um, he died for the sins of the whole world. That might be right. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay. And it's our job to, to emulate this and to, and to drink the cup that Jesus has given us. Man, sometimes that's hard, right? When, you know, Jesus is willingly submitting to what the Father has had for him. As I said, he chose of his own will. He's God. Um, but this should be our, you know, this should be something that's in our heart, that we drink whatever the cup is that Jesus has for us. It's fun when we drink the cup of blessings and favor and just good times, but it's hard to drink the cup of uh, trials and difficulties and hardships, right? That's a hard cup to drink, but we too need to drink the cup that Jesus has given us to drink, be it good or bad, right, Tom? My brother Tom and I have been talking about this a lot this week. Just, uh, it's so hard to be thankful, right? You remember when Job, you know, um, you know, almost everything is, you know, everything is taken from him, right? He goes, you know, he's the most righteous man in the world. His entire life is destroyed. All of his children are killed, right? And, you know, only his wife, is allowed to survive and she tells him to curse God and die and he says you're speaking like a foolish woman shall we thank the Lord for good shall we thank God for good and not for trouble and again Tom and I have been speaking about that and the faith of that statement shall we thank God for good and not for trouble and I confess father that I'm I'm not I'm terrible at this I'm not thankful for trouble, right? Go figure. For difficulties, for trials, but we do want to have this this heart in us to drink the cup, good and bad, that Jesus has for us, right? Obviously, we pray for deliverance. We pray that He heal us. We pray for ourselves and others, but ultimately, we want to have an attitude that we're willing to go through what 
what Jesus has for us, right? Now, in, in John's gospel, it doesn't, it doesn't address it all. John, for whatever reason, doesn't feel it important to address that Jesus picks up Malchus's ear, puts it back, and heals him. Some say, some scholars say that the reason Malchus is mentioned here by name is because he later became a Christian. It's in Luke 22. I forget the verse, but it's in Luke 22, I believe, where Jesus, it, the, same, the same story, Luke records it, except it says Jesus picked up Malchus's ear and put it back and healed him, right? And now just, just try to think about that for a minute. That'll blow your mind too, right? Like when an ear is lopped off, right? There's a lot of like cells and stuff, right? My my cousin Corinne is a is like a I don't know a doctor lady a nurse practitioner right and you know when you when you lop an ear off right Corinne when that whole ear gets lopped off I mean you just don't like put it back right isn't doesn't there have to be some like isn't there all kinds of like cells and stuff and stuff that's gotta you know it, it, it would it would have to be a massive operation right Jesus just simply picked up the ear and put it back, and had to restore all, all, all that had happened when it was mangled and cut off, right? There would have been a, a lot of things that, you know, a doctor might have had to do a 10-hour surgery on that, right? And it would never be the same, right? But Jesus just put it back, and when he did that, all the order that was put out of order when the ear was cut off, all that would have had to been put back in place too, right? It, it's, it's unthinkable. But in Luke 22, it, 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 you know, John doesn't record it, but it says Jesus picked up Malchus's ear and healed him, right? And put the ear back, and it was fully restored like the other one. Pretty incredible. Um, and so certainly it would be understandable that, again, it's not told us in the Bible. But they're saying when John mentions his name, there's a good possibility that it's because Malchus later became a Christian. And again, if that happened to you, and this guy, Jesus, kept telling you, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah, I am. And that it's only by trusting in me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If your ear got lopped off, and this guy before you named Jesus came to you and looked you in the eye, picked up your ear, put it back, and healed it, yeah, you probably believe in him too, right? Real quick. Thank you, Lord Jesus. All right, verse 12. Then the detachment, 600 of soldiers, with its commander and Jewish, Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. So again, so again, he allowed himself to be arrested. They see what's going on. You notice Peter just, just, uh, just cut off his ear. Luke tells us he healed it. But no one, you know, no one messes with the disciples. Right? Because Jesus said that's not happened. You will let these men go. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. Okay? So now you see his arrest. He submits to arrest. He allows him to do it. Verse 12, verse 13. And brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Um, Annas history has it as a just a uh, just a terrible, vulgar, um, just manipulative man, just an evil man. 
Um, and so he was brought first to Annas. We don't know if it was Annas who had, uh, you know, who's the one who set this whole thing up. But verse 14, it says that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So you can see the buddy-buddy the situation here, right? These are the big-time Jewish leaders, right? It's like a good old boy system, right? Um, and I'll say that's just, that's often a problem in the church today. Sometimes we have folks in ministry who are given ministry jobs because, you know, it's a buddy and a friend and all that. And all that's fine, but they, we have to be qualified for the work, right? Um, you know, you, you don't put someone in ministry. Yes, you can give a buddy in a job in the church, but if it's going to be a pastoral job, there, there has to be a calling from God to do that. Otherwise, if God has called them to be, you know, a, a bookkeeper, then make them a bookkeeper. If God's called them to be a, um, you know, receptionist, then be a receptionist. If God's called them to be, you know, um, keeping the grounds or maintenance, then that's what it is. Um, you know, the call of being a pastor is not greater than the call of being a, a, a bookkeeper or an accountant um, or a shop clerk um, or a deli manager um, or a doctor or a nurse. The, the, the call of a pastor is no more important. Whatever your job is today, you need to do that unto Christ, okay? One call is not superior or more, you know, or better than another, right? Whatever our work is, we're called to do it under Christ, right? Um, and, you know, when we believe otherwise, it's called dualism, right? I, I learned, I, I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but I learned about dualism from a, you know, from a, from a teacher I had, Dr. Chester, who, uh, you know, he still teaches, uh, you know, on, on just, the, just the ramifications of our dualism that comes through so much of our lives. But I'll leave that for him. That's not my lane. All right, verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, this is a sensible statement um, earlier, you know, in the book. It tells us, I think it's chapter 11, um, right around 11, 5 or whatever. Chapter 11, I think, where it says that Caiaphas had um, had said that, that it would be better or good if one man died for the people instead of the whole nation dying, right? Um but and, and of course, this certainly makes sense, right? It's better for one man to die than a, than a whole nation of people to die. But it's wicked because it's not okay for an innocent man to die, okay? It's not okay for a man who hasn't done anything wrong to die. It's not okay to just take someone and kill them, right, so that you can have your agenda met. So obviously, it's a, it's, it's a wrong and evil thought, so... Um, incredible, incredible verses. Um, you know, we're going to spit, we'll pick up in verse 15 next time. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We just got to know who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Jesus. Right. So father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and favor and goodness on our lives. We thank you for your love. Um, we just thank you for our Bible father. We thank you for that. We get to have the living word of God and study your word. And Father, we just thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for willingly giving your life for us. We thank you, Lord, for drinking the cup the Father has given you. We ask you to help us, Lord, to drink the cup you give us, Lord. And I, I confess, Lord Jesus, I thank you for all the good things. I thank you for the blessings. And I, I haven't done well in, in even dealing with the, 
the trials and difficulties and hardships. So I ask you to help us, Lord, and to forgive us in that. Holy Spirit, we ask you to, to seal the message to our hearts as we go. Give us eyes that see Jesus and ears that hear him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.